Welcome to the McCarthy Report, the podcast where I, Rich Lowry, discuss with Andy McCarthy the latest legal and national security issues. This week, what else? The latest on the border and the Fannie Willis verdict, by the way. For some reason, you're not already following us on streaming service. You can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And please give this podcast and Andy McCarthy the glowing, indeed gushing, five-star reviews they deserve on iTunes. And now, without further ado, I welcome to this very podcast through the miracle of Riverside, none other than Andy McCarthy. Hey, Rich, how are you? Good. How are you? Uh, I have to stop reading the paper before we start. I, I, I just <laughs> I get this feeling like the world is um, upside down. So there's this Trump judge in Washington, and he has the case of this guy who's a monster, uh, one of these January 6th guys. And there's there's recording of this. The guy hits a cop near, uh, near the Capitol and knocks him over a ledge. And this Trump judge, uh, Tim Kelly, uh, is it? Yeah, Tim Kelly. So he gives the guy six and a half years in prison. And I'm like, that makes complete sense to me. I, I, as the way I'm wired, I would have been tempted to give more than six and a half years, but I don't know what the judge was, was looking at six. That's a, that's a hefty sentence for, you know, uh, five very bad seconds of bad behavior and bad judgment in the guy's life. Um, but then you flip the page and there's five illegal aliens in New York Mm -hmm. and they, they basically beat up two of these cops and they beat one of them like unbelievably. Right. And there's all kinds of video of it and everything. And the next thing you see is the guy, the, the main culprit walks out of court. They yeah. get released on bail. They don't get bail. They get released on no bail. They walk out of the, the court, and the guy's flipping the bird. Yeah, the double the, bird. To the, the double bird. Um, yeah. And then you get this. There's a, the um, district attorney. What? Well, what functions as the district attorney in Washington D.C. Or I say, I should say, shouldn't function. What doesn't function? Um, this this guy Brian Schwab. He's having a meeting with people who are crime victims because nobody can even drive in D.C. anymore. You know, they tell you you better drive in the middle lane because that's your best uh, defense against being carjacked because carjacking is such a an epidemic there. So they have this guy, Brian Schwab, meeting with like crime victims and parents of crime victims. And he says to them, you know, we can't arrest and prosecute our way out of this. I'm like, what? Yep. What are you doing? <laughs> what do you? You know, what does that mean even from a prosecutor? I know well, it's um, been proven that you can arrest and, and prosecute your way way out. Damn of right it has. Stop, yeah. uh, stop trying. So oh, man, it's just the world is upside down. I mean, the world is just this is so bad that what's going on in these cities is so bad, and and then when you know in this crazy city. We got the the mayor of Chicago. Um, we have an epidemic of shooting, murder, crime, and he's arranging a. Uh, they voted a ceasefire resolution for Palestine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, mean, yeah. I saw somebody on Twitter say, "You know, Netanyahu ought to call for a ceasefire in Chicago." He's right. Mm-hmm. Jeez, I mean, I, the, the world is crazy. 
All right. All right. I, I'm sorry, Rich. End of my rant. No problem. Let's, no, I, I hope the ranting is just beginning, but let's let's rant about slightly different stuff. So Fannie Willis, 83.3 million. Does this make any sense? You mean E. Jean Carroll. Sorry, what did I say? Fannie Willis. Yeah, Fanny we'll, get Willis. Her. we'll get to her. She she was funneling yeah. eight, 83 million or, or paying that much for vacation. I yeah, I was Sorry, I, E. Jean Carroll. <laughs> I thought you knew something I didn't. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that would just be an, that, you that don't, would be another brick in the wall for Fanny. I mean, yeah, you're not you're not corrupt just once. There is more coming, and we're going to talk about how to vote <laughs> a, a little bit more. Um, all right, oh, yeah, sorry, Eugene Carroll. Well, well, Eugene Carroll. So, um, this is the most peculiar case. I was talking to my wife about this, and I said, you know, the the wacko thing about this is when you see her and you see Trump, if somebody told you he did it, you wouldn't be able to say it's totally, utterly impossible that he could have done it. And if somebody told you she made the whole thing up, you couldn't possibly say it's utterly impossible that she made the whole thing up. So you just got these two people. Um, and I think what happened here, this $83.3 million dollars, has a lot to do with the judge, uh, Judge Lewis Kaplan, who um, is a good judge. He was put on the bench by uh, Clinton in 1994. He always had the reputation when I was in the Southern District. Mind you, I haven't been there since, you know, uh, some antediluvian times. But um, he he always had the reputation of running a tight ship, being a smart guy, etc., but I think this whole thing is driven by his insistence on having two trials instead of one. Um, just so, so people understand, this is like the procedural posture of this is very confusing. But just quickly, um, E. Jean Carroll writes this book about men she can't stand. And there's an excerpt of it that gets published, I think, in New York Magazine in 2019, while Trump is still president. And she's got a chapter in the book about Trump where she describes this sexual assault that we've been over before at, uh, at, at Bergdorf Goodman. And, of course, at that time, she couldn't even – and she still can't pin it down to a year, never mind like a date and a time and an hour and all that stuff um, – her recollection was that it was in the mid-90s. It's very hard for me to believe that a person couldn't at least reconstruct the year and the approximate time of year uh, with something that horrific. Uh, and I'd be very, I'd be very uh, skeptical about that as a prosecutor if somebody told me this terrible thing happened, but I can't mm -hmm. like pick out exactly what you know what year it even was. Um, but in any event. Um, by the time it, it, 2019, the thing is, even by her fuzzy math, it's about a quarter of a century old. Um, and it's way, way beyond the statute of limitations in New York for sexual assault. So there's nothing really, there's not, no legal action to take until Trump starts running off at the mouth. And I suppose, look, from his standpoint, if this didn't happen, and it is a crazy story, and there isn't any forensic evidence supporting that. You know, the only support for this incident is her narrative testimony about it, 
and the testimony of two of her friends who were close to her, to whom she made fairly contemporaneous reports, one of whom she actually called from the street on Fifth Avenue, and the other who she met with uh, like a day or two later. But other than that, there's no report to the police, there's no surveillance, there's no forensic evidence, there's no anything. Um, So Trump, of course, denies it, but he denies it in his... Trump way. Like he can't, he can't just leave it at, uh, you know, no, that's ridiculous. That didn't happen. He attacks her as a, you know, like a crazy person who's trying mm-hmm. to sell a book and, uh, et cetera. You know, Trump, uh, t- Trump never leaves the gloves on, right? He's, uh, uh, he's very aggressive in his denial. So she turns around and sues him for defamation. The case shouldn't even have been in federal court. She sued him in New York state court. Um, But what ends up happening is Trump's Justice Department, no doubt prompted by Trump, moves the case into federal court where he would have a defense that his statements were arguably within the ambit of his presidential duties because he's fending off accusations that uh, uh, if, if people believe them, even though he says they're false, they could hurt the government, they could hurt the way that he's able to govern, uh, et cetera. And, you know, there's a lot of people who who just dismiss that as a frivolous claim. It is not a frivolous claim. In fact, um, one of the big things in this case is that it's such a complicated claim, like what is in the president's job description, that it tied up the appellate courts in this case for about three years, right? So all you have at this point, Rich, is this December 19th, uh, I'm sorry, uh, this 2019 defamation allegation. And then remember, this is the height of Me Too. Um, So New York, in the height of Me Too, (laughs) oddly enough, under Andrew Cuomo, uh, changes its law uh, so that it gives a one-year window where the statute of limitations is waived for people who claim that they have been sexually abused. And she exploits this window um, to file a civil tort of sexual uh, uh, abuse against Trump. And she, her claim is that she was raped, um, but as a sort of a lesser included part of that, um, you have sexual abuse and forcible touching. So that's all part of the same uh, allegation. So now you have... The 2019 defamation and the sexual assault. Um, then Trump leaves office. At the time he leaves office, the, the, the trial court and the appellate court are still grappling with whether he has immunity for the 2019 defamation. But because he can't control himself, he gets on his truth social and goes crazy about E. Jean Carroll, repeating the things that he said that were that were part of the 2019 thing, except now he doesn't have immunity. Anymore. <laughs> right. So she adds a third claim, which we can call now the 2022 defamation claim. Right. So you have these three claims, 2019 and 2022 defamation and the sexual assault. Kaplan puts it down for trial in April of 2023. And you can't really say he rushed it to trial. This is like it's been kicking around since 2019. And he's one of these guys who is very serious about getting through 
his docket. So I don't think it's a fair criticism in this case that this was timed for purposes of the election. Um, but he, I think Kaplan didn't want to get caught in a 2024 trial, and perhaps this is why he did what he did, but I think this was very foolish. While the 2019 claim is still being litigated between the Second Circuit and a court in Washington that they referred it to that deals with federal employment issues to try to define what the scope of the president's um, uh, uh, duties are, his legitimate uh, duties to determine whether the the response to Carroll was within that or not. Uh, Kaplan says, we're going to trial on the sexual assault and 2022 defamation claims. And Trump is like, what are you talking about? We're going to trial. I want to go to one trial where everything's in the trial. Now, I think Kaplan felt, and this was probably true, that Trump was just trying to get delay here, which is what he was always trying to do. He's trying to delay everything and, and you know, push it beyond. Plus, he's hoping that the courts of appeals will see it his way on the immunity and that that will be very damaging to Carol's case. But in any event, Kaplan, in a very headstrong way, is determined that they're going to go to trial. So he goes to trial on the two counts or the two claims that can be tried at that point, not on the 2019 defamation claim. And then Trump doesn't participate in the trial. Um, he decides at that point the political expedience is not for him to be sitting in a courtroom when she's describing this horrific sexual assault the way that she describes it. It's a very foolish position for him to take because in a civil case, unlike a criminal case, if you don't participate, if you don't show up, that bothers the jury because they have to show up. But more importantly, if you don't testify, unlike in a criminal case, the court instructs the jury that they can draw a negative inference from the fact that the person doesn't come in, take the oath, and look at the jury in the eye and testify, right? Uh, and the negative inference, obviously, is along the lines of if this guy had an innocent explanation, he'd come in and tell you what it was, right? So almost everybody who, who defaults this way in a, in a civil trial as a defendant is going to lose because you, you're the only, you know, something always beats nothing. And plus the court's going to tell the jury that the fact that you didn't testify is really bad. Right. So not surprisingly, he loses. Um, and they award, and this is some indication, I think, Rich, that they weren't totally moved by her story, which I think Joe Tacopina did a very workmanlike job of, I'm not saying he blew her out of the water. She was a pretty good witness, uh, but he, he cut holes in her testimony where uh, a competent lawyer would have. And at the end, they find in her favor, which again is not surprising, but they award her only 2 million on the sexual assault, which is like th the big deal here. Right. And they, in a case where they heard evidence about the 2019 uh, defamation and obviously factored it into their deliberations, even though they didn't render a verdict on it because it wasn't part of the case as a claim, um, they they award her $3 million on the defamation. Okay, so that's $5 million. Trump being Trump, again, not able to control himself, he goes out right after the verdict – 
And again, on remember the CNN interview, um, yeah. and then there was other stuff on um, on Truth Social. He goes out again and repeats the def- the, the same statements. He, a jury has just awarded three million as defamation. He goes out and repeats them again. So she sues him again, right? So now we have the 2023 defamation, the post-verdict defamation, and we still got the 2019 defamation laying around because that was not part of the first case, even though it was part of the evidence in the first case. So Kaplan says we're going to have another trial, but here's what we're going to do in the second trial. Because of the doctrine of collateral estoppel, which holds that if you have the same two parties and they've had a full and fair opportunity to litigate key issues, they don't get to relitigate them between each other. So Kaplan finds that the fact that Trump uh, has committed sexual assault and the fact that he has defamed Carol with statements that are substantially the same as the statements that are going to be in the second trial, that that is, as they say, Res judicata. It's Trump is it's established fact for purposes of the case, and Trump is barred from relitigating it, which essentially means the second trial is only about damages because Mm -hmm. he's left in the case. Now he now two things happen, right? He's told he can't defend himself, and now unlike the first trial, he decides he wants to show up and participate in the second trial. Mm-hmm. So now he shows up and participates, but he can't really say anything right? because the judge has already said you, you can't challenge that. And the case is about damages. But from Trump's standpoint, the biggest problem or the best thing he's got going for him on damages is if he can convince the jury that it didn't happen in the first place. That's like mm-hmm. the most essential right. thing about the damages. Right. Um, so to make a very long story that I've to- made too long short. He's not allowed to defend himself, um, and the case is only about damages, and this time, the jury goes crazy. At the beginning, she's asking for $10 million, which to me seemed like a lot because she got $5 million in the case that actually had the sexual assault in it. Right. By the end of the trial... She's asking for twelve million on each defamation, so she's asking for twelve uh, for twenty four million, and she says you really need to hammer this guy on punitive damages because he's shown that he will do this again and again and again. And I'm sitting there saying, well, he may do it again and again and again. There's no doubt about that, and it is kind of contemptuous to continue to do it. But on the other hand. She's got to have damages and she's like more famous than she's ever been. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she's, you know, he, she, he's raised her profile right. uh, and, and among the, in the world that she lives in, she's a star, she's a hero. So anyway, the jury uh, gives her uh, $65 million in punitive damages. And I, I guess it's uh, 18 million in uh, compensatory damages most of which is supposed to be dedicated to a program to reconstruct her reputation, which is like a higher reputation than she's ever had in her life. Um, so I, I really think that this should have been one trial. It should never have been two different trials. Um, under the circumstances, 
Kaplan should have given Trump latitude to deny the allegation. It wouldn't, if he had let Trump do that, it wouldn't have affected the first trial. It wouldn't have been like Gene Carroll had to give the five million back, or that he, you know, the verdict would be canceled. But you let the guy litigate, especially because it was the judge's fault that there was two trials here. Trump didn't want to have two trials; he only had want to have one. And then the thing I think, Rich, that it, to me is the biggest issue on appeal is why is it that Trump was stuck as far as collateral estoppel is concerned with the first jury's findings on sexual assault and was it defamation? Yes, it was defamation. But Carol's not stuck with the first jury as far as damages are concerned. Because mm-hmm. the first jury looks at this and they say, hmm, you know, not very strong evidence of sexual assault. But on balance, we're going to say, you know, she proved it by a preponderance. It's a low civil standard. But they give her, you know, she was really sexual assault, sexually assaulted. Two million is not, you know, out of this world damages. And then they looked at how she was damaged by all this, including looking at the 2019 defamation that they weren't able to decide, but it was in front of them as evidence. And they say, yeah, that's worth $3 million. So we go from a jury looks at that and says, that's worth $3 million. And then we get a second trial. And you're supposed to believe that because Trump went on CNN and repeated the same thing again, it's now worth $83.3 million? Mm-hmm. That doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. So, so Trump, where's the appeal go? Who does he appeal to? Yeah. So the appeal goes to the Second Circuit. And um, the first trial is already on appeal in the second circuit. So the second, the second trial will now go to the second circuit, but here's the thing, Rich, um, in civil law is different from criminal law in a lot of uh, important procedural ways. One is you don't have an automatic right that the, that the public has to pay for to appeal in a civil case. So Trump has a right to appeal, but he's got to pay for it. So in to appeal the first verdict, he had to post at interest the $5 million judgment with the court. It cost him about $5.5 million. And the money goes into an escrow account because they won't hear your appeal until they're sure that if you lose your appeal, you're going to pay what you owe. So he had to post that money, and Carol gets it if he loses the appeal, at least to the extent the the court upholds the damages. So now... To appeal this $83.3 million judgment, Trump's going to have to post that money with the court um, at interest. So it's going to cost him about $90 million. Now, there's two ways that you can do this, and I suspect he'll he'll pick the second way uh, just under, under the circumstances because of what, what he's got coming around the mountain that I'll get to in a second. Um, the first way you can do it is just if you're liquid enough, you post cash and at interest, and the court holds that. But then that money is tied up. You know, you can't do anything with it. The second way you can do it is by getting a bond. And what Trump would have to do to get a, ma- a, a bond would be to post property in the amount of the judgment plus interest. So he could take one of or two or more of his properties that are worth that kind of money. And, you know, remember, Trump's got a lot of real estate, 
but he's also he's also got a lot of heavily leveraged real estate. So like just because he's got like 90 Wall Street or whatever that uh, that building is, that building could be worth four or five hundred million dollars. But I don't know what the state of the mortgages are on it, uh, et cetera. So he's going to have to cobble together, I think, enough of his property that he can secure a 90 million dollar bond, which will sit with the court and then he won't be able to do anything with that property uh, including turn it into liquid assets until after the appeal is decided. That'll be, it'll be tied up until then. And that could take a couple of years. So th- the reason I think it was worth laying that out is we haven't gotten it today, Rich. I actually thought we'd be talking about this this morning, but any minute we're going to get the judgment from Judge Engeron in the civil fraud case that Tish James brought, where at the beginning, I think we talked about this a little last week. At the beginning of that case, she asked for $250 million, right? And then there was an 11-week trial during which she proved no victims and decided by the end of it, you know, I think the damages are actually $370 million. And Engeron, who is, as we've said, another progressive Democrat elected to the bench in the New York system, so far in this case, he's done everything Tish James has wanted. So I don't think at the you know, in the at the end of the day, he's not going to suddenly change course. So I expect maybe today, maybe tomorrow, maybe early next week, we're going to get a judgment from him. Remember, that's a bench trial. It shouldn't be a bench trial. He should have been entitled to a jury trial for for damages of this extent. But be that as it may, it's a bench trial in front of a hostile judge. I anticipate he's going to give James, if he doesn't give her 370, it's going to be something awful close to 370 uh, million. And then Trump, to appeal, is going to have to do similar in New York State what he has to do in the federal civil court, which is put up the money in order to appeal. Mm-hmm. So let, let's pause here. And then obviously, since I, since I have her on the brain, talk a little bit about Fannie Wilson and get to the border. Let me do a quick plug for NR Plus Digital Subscription Service at nationalreview.com. Your way around a metered paywall. Your way, if you sign up and log in to see about 90% fewer ads, your way to comment on articles and blog posts if that floats your boat and get invited to exclusive events and calls with our writers, editors, and other conservative figures. And most importantly, a really crucial way to support our valuable journalism. So if you're not already a member, please consider becoming a member and joining tens of thousands of your fellow National Review readers as a member of NR Plus in good standing. So it looks like Fannie was going to have to testify in this divorce case, which would have been uh, very embarrassing. It's uh, She she uh, escaped that fate, but she's still being investigated for her relationship and how, how she handled the, the appointment and how much money he was getting her uh, alleged paramour, and then the, the, the Washington Free Beacon, which is a, a scoop machine, is on this this other um, alleged corrupt uh, um, act act here where there was a, uh, a, a office or division in the office that uh, got a big federal grant, and Fannie Wills comes in, and allegedly her people are saying, oh, you know, we're going to take that grant and we're going to use it for a swag and travel and computers and other things. And the, the woman who headed this office is now a whistleblower. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, 
Well, really, kudos to uh, you're right about the free beacon. This is a Andrew Kerr's story, but our old pal uh, Eliana Johnson's really got them hopping over there. Um, and yeah, the way you've described it is exactly right. Uh, basically, Fanny fired this woman who now says that she was a whistleblower, uh, Amanda Timpson, and she does say that this guy Michael Kufi, she was her job in the office was. Um, something that's very fashionable in progressive prosecutors' office, uh, offices. She's the um, in charge of seeking alternatives to prosecution for uh, supposedly nonviolent juvenile defender, uh, uh, defendants uh, or offenders, I was going to say. Um, and the grant was in the ballpark of her responsibilities, which is why she was um, – why she was involved in it was earmarked 488,000 from the federal government earmarked for a center for youth empowerment and gang prevention, which, uh, according to her, Fannie Willis's guy advisor, uh, this guy, Michael Kufi said, as you just mentioned, we're going to raid this basically for stuff. We want swag and uh, travel and, you know, uh, Mac computers and the like. Um, and she said, you can't do that. And she complained to Willis. They have Will- They have her on and Willis on tape. They have her telling this to Willis and they have Willis saying, you know, I hear what you're saying and I'm not saying it's not, uh, I'm not saying you're wrong. Um, but then two months later, according to Timpson, Willis has her placed, uh, basically fires her and has her escorted out of the building by, she says, seven armed inspectors. So she's now dealing with yet another scandal. In the meantime, she did escape having to testify in this divorce proceeding. But right uh, right before we got on, Rich, I saw that she had made a statement in the last uh, day or so saying, uh, I, I should back up and say, in the Atlanta case, the Trump-Rico case, President, former President Trump has now joined with the co-defendant who was moving for Fannie Willis to be recused and, you know, kicked out of the case and get the indictment dismissed. Um, So she's put out a statement that says she has no intention to go anywhere. She doesn't see any reason why she needs to recuse from the case. Um, But her troubles there are not over because the court has required her to file a written response to the defense motion. That's got to be done by tomorrow. We're talking Thursday. So by uh, Friday, February 2nd. And then in the meantime, in addition to the court scrutinizing this for purposes of deciding what happens to the case, you know, does she get to stay on? Does Nathan Wade get to stay on? Does, uh, does the indictment get dismissed, et cetera? I don't think there's a great chance the indictment will be dismissed, but uh, it'll be interesting. Um, but also the legislature, which is controlled by Republicans in the state of Georgia, is now investigating Willis. And Jim Johnson's Judiciary Committee is also conducting an investigation. So she didn't have to testify in the divorce case, but she's hardly out of the woods on this. Yeah. All right. So let's, let's go to the border. So we finally got these December numbers, which we've been waiting on. And obviously the administration was just trying not to release until this, this uh, border deal uh, gets done, but they finally released them on a, a typical Friday news dump, 371, thousand encounters that highest ever recorded bill malusion who's been invaluable on the story obviously had had uh, had these numbers leaked a while ago and says 
you know, they're going to be bad. They're going to be bad. And sure enough, they're, they're really bad. Yeah. They're historically bad and they're bad in every way. It's not only 371,000 as, um, our friends at the, um, Center for Immigration Studies, you, you, I, I think Mark has done great work there, Mark Krikorian. Uh, and the guy I read uh, very closely is Andrew Arthur, who's a former yep. immigration judge and Justice Department official who's just great on this stuff. Um, they point out that that in one month, that's fifteen or 16,000 people more than the population of Cleveland, Ohio, a major American city coming into the United States in a single month. Yeah, it's amazing how you know there 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 are a few cities that uh, a handful of cities you know New York City eight million, but uh, when when you tick down you know from Los Angeles and Chicago you you get to uh, the numbers aren't huge for major U.S. cities. So yeah, the, that's right. That's exactly right. You know, I I think I always like to use Los Angeles because everybody thinks of it rightly so as a huge city. Uh, Los Angeles has about four. And change, maybe four one, four point two million people. Um, basically, Biden has let enough illegal aliens into the country to make up to fill Los Angeles, and then half again, mm-hmm. over six million. Um, some people say closer to eight million than six million. And I think the problem with that, Rich, is with these gotaways. Nobody has any real idea. I mean, Bill Malusian may have a better idea of how many are getting in, than, you know, because their coverage where they're just, you know, they're actually covering it and depicting it. Um, they're not apprehending anyone. They're just bearing witness to it. And otherwise, without them, we wouldn't, the rest of us wouldn't be able to do that. But what they point out time and time again is how there's like a feedback loop where this thing feeds on itself. And the more people that they let in, the more your border patrol agents become administrators and, frankly, babysitters. But the one thing they can't do is patrol the border. So the less time and the less people that we can put on the border, the more gotaways get in because there's not there's not enough patrol resources to do anything about that because they won't deploy more. Um, and as a result, the estimate on gotaways is about um, 600,000 a year, but it could be much more than that. So that's estimated to be 1.7 million since Biden took office. And then it's about three and a half million. It's estimated that he is allowed in and then processed uh, into the country. And then you have to factor in the fact that they're trying, they're letting a lot of people in quote unquote, legally, who are actually illegal, but they're categorizing them somehow as legal because they get these cockamamie Biden visas off the app um, so they can schedule their illegal immigration into the country. And presto, they're supposed to be legal, right? And what these figures, as Andrew Arthur points out, uh, what these figures show us is that um, almost all of these people who are applying by the app are getting in. So the administration gives 1,450 appointments by de- every day, and 98.5 of those people get into the country. And that, that has, of course, you know, the con job at the beginning about that was, 
we're going to set up this app and it's going to be much, it's going to make things run. It'll be less chaotic. It'll be much more orderly. So of course, that's precisely the opposite, right? It's like that idiotic New York Times yesterday uh, article that said, um, you know, Biden's problem at the border. People think if they come, they'll be able to stay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, really? Is that the New York Times has figured out that? Imagine after all this time. Um, but of course, you know, so the problem is the more people who get in, the more people come. You know, <laughs> you know that you use the app and you get like a 98.5% mm -hmm. chance of getting in. So these these ports that were supposed to be so orderly and they'll be flooded with uh, with people. And then there's this other thing, which I thought was very important, Rich, for I, I think this is like a, a case where Biden's I, I wrote a piece about this for the site where Biden's these these crises are not like in discrete packages. They actually uh, feed on each other and leverage each other. And I think we have a case of Biden's border crisis exacerbating the Iran crisis. And what I mean by that is. One of Biden's ridiculous visa programs is this one that's uh, the CHNV program. Um, it, it's about countries in uh, South and Central America. So CHNV is Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. And the idea is the administration is giving them 360,000 entries a year on these, what, you know, Biden visas, like he has the authority to do this, which the law does not give him. Um, and a goodly chunk of that 360,000 is going to Venezuela, which in addition to being a country that's hostile to the United States, has an operational alliance with Iran that has, that goes back a number of years. And that is now um, much more alarming than it was before. And I think it's given Iran a big toehold in the West that they didn't have before. So you have Venezuela getting a chunk of this 360,000 of these visas that Biden is giving out every year. And yet, even though he has this visa program, all that's doing is wetting the appetite of Venezuelans to come here. So beyond the visa program, I think it was in December... We had 47,000 Venezuelans came to the United States illegally, completely independent of this visa program. And that, as alarming as it is, was less than September, where they had like 53,000 come in. So we're getting like something in the neighborhood of like 35 to over 50,000 Venezuelans a month showing up in the United States illegally. Now, if anybody thinks that Iran is not taking advantage of that channel, I think you got to screw loose. I mean, obviously they are. Um, and we know from Chris Ray's testimony toward the end of last year that they're very concerned with Iranian operations inside the United States. And, you know, I, I guess, like, I'm an old counterterrorism guy, right? So this is the thing that we worried about in the 90s. Who's coming in the border? Is Al-Qaeda coming in? Is Hezbollah coming in? Do they have cells in the country? Um, when, uh, when Biden talks about his fear of escalation of the war in the Middle East, and that's why he's had such carefully calibrated responses to the Houthis and to all the Iranian proxies who've been attacking our guys, um, 
I think the thing that they're most worried about is not so much escalation in the Middle East, although that's a profound problem. I think they're worried about Iranian operatives in the United States. Mm-hmm. And we're in a situation where our border is so porous and so unsecure and so unguarded. And we're dealing now with sophisticated actors who know how to exploit every – they probe for every weakness and they exploit every weakness. I'm very concerned that there are Iranian cells in the United States. And I think I, – I imagine that in the Biden White House, as much as they're worried about, like, we don't want to do the thing that leads to this big regional war as if we don't already have a spreading regional war – I think one of the things they're very concerned about is operations inside our country. Mm-hmm. All right. So finally, we got this Mayorkas impeachment. Looks like it's happening. You had the House Homeland Security Committee yesterday. We're recording on Thursday, voting out two articles of impeachment. There are differing conservative opinions about this. The Wall Street Journal says not going to make a difference. Charlie Cook um, made it made a compelling case on the editor's podcast that we did yesterday. Look, it's a unitary executive. You shouldn't be impeaching the guy who's just carrying out the derelict orders of the president who's running the whole show. And then there's like, eh, you know, Mayorkas himself is is derelict, and this is an important issue and a way to to uh, highlight and and make the case how. Um, just appalling the the appalling and lawless the administration's policy has been. Yeah, I'm I'm really more with Charlie on this. I I'm not against impeaching Mayorkas, but I I have to say, Rich, I don't know what the hell they're doing these guys, right? So we have an impeachment inquiry on the president, mm-hmm. and I'm not saying that the by I mean, look we've extensively we probably on our podcast. We've probably covered the Hunter Biden stuff as extensively as it's been covered anywhere, right? So I'm not saying I, – I am the first person to say that if corrupt and anti-American regimes are into Biden for $24 million over just five years, that's an alarming national security problem and, and it has to be gotten to the bottom of. And I completely support the aggressive investigation. But if you look at what – three years of Biden's governance have wrought, if you're going to impeach him, the border has to be number one with a bullet. Yeah, so why would would these be separate things? You you impeach him for the corruption and you impeach his Homeland Security Secretary for for getting told by Biden not to enforce the border. Yeah, I I just don't get it. I mean, I'm I'm all in. I I think I wrote a column a year, a year and a half ago about this to say it said – impeach Biden over the border. And I take on uh, the argument that you're never going to get, you're never going to remove him. You know, one of the big arguments against impeachment, other than is it an impeachable offense or not, um, the biggest argument against impeachment and what's supposed to depress the urge to have impeachments that would be futile is the idea that if you don't have a prayer of getting a two-thirds vote, for conviction in the Senate, why start the process in the first place? And I think for about um, 90 plus percent of the cases where you could use impeachment, I'd, I'd, I'd agree with that. The thing is, an impeachment trial shuts down the work, uh, when it's an impeachment trial of the president, not an impeachment trial of any other official, 
not even an ex-president. Remember, when Donald Trump got his second impeachment, the uh, chief justice didn't even come and preside over it, right? Because he's not the president anymore. It's a bigger deal to uh, impeach a sitting president than anything else. So when a sitting president gets impeached, all the business of the Senate shuts down and the attention of the country is riveted to whatever it is that they're impeaching the president over. Um, So if you're impeaching Mayorkas, even though you know you can never get him convicted in the Senate because you're trying to draw political attention and political accountability to the catastrophe at the border, why not put in the doc, the guy who caused it? Mm-hmm. Instead of the guy who's just following orders, you know, um, I, I just don't, I just don't get it. Um, and then I'm not saying, you know, you want to impeach my orcas, fine, me impeach my orcas. But Charlie is right, and I write about this in the um, impeachment book I did back in 2014, Faithless Execution. The framers' idea in establishing the executive branch. And as Justice Scalia said, in investing all of the executive power in one single official, the president, is that the president is not supposed to be able to escape accountability by saying, oh, it's his fault over there. Oh, it's his fault over there. Remember, we I felt like we spent the whole of the Obama administration marveling at the fact that Obama used to talk about his government as if he was a spectator. Mm-hmm. Like there were all these actors and he was just like, a, you know, when something would go wrong, he'd say, yeah, I'm very upset about that. Like he had nothing to do yeah. with it, right? Trump, same um, thing. Yeah. Well, that, why should they all do it? Because they can get away with it. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you're the guy who's in charge. Mm-hmm. Of course, the thing with Trump is when Trump was president, the media believed in the in the unitary executive, right? <laughs> Everything that went wrong was absolutely Trump's fault. But, you know, the whole idea was the president's not supposed to be able to dodge political accountability for abusing the enormous, awesome powers that are vested in him by basically deflecting things off to subordinate officials. And Mayorkas has no power. He is carrying out Biden's power. Everything that's happening in the in the border is based on executive orders and directives that Biden issued, starting with like minutes after he was inaugurated, when he went about dismantling Trump's border policies for no better reason than that they were Trump's policies. Whether they worked or not was not a thing, right? The thing was, we hate Trump. These are Trump's policies. We're dismantling them. And that's the reason we have a disaster at the border. I'm not a Mayorkas fan, but he's not the reason we have a disaster at the border. And I'm not saying he doesn't deserve to be impeached, but if it's futile anyway. And if you're only doing this to draw attention, then why not draw attention centered on the guy who caused it? All right. Well, that's all the time we have. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shuddy. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And thank you, Andy McCarthy. Thanks, Rich.